0: People are yearning for information, having the opportunity to encourage people
1: and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone.
0: Our guest today, Karen Thompson, formerly a model from South Africa, is the founder of the online program Sugar-Free Revolution and the Harmony Eating and Lifestyle Program. Karen is a recovering cocaine and sugar addict and identified a need for a support network and programs for those people trying to kick sugar and carbohydrate addiction. She is the author of Sugar-Free, Eight Weeks to Freedom from Sugar and Carb Addiction. Welcome, Karen, to HealthGig.
2: Oh, I am so excited to be here. (laughs) Thank you both for having me.
0: Thank you for being here. We're excited too. So, Karen, tell us your personal journey and how you found yourself at the forefront of the sugar addiction discussion. You call it the sugar-free
2: revolution. (laughs) Well, I'm hoping it becomes a revolution, but absolutely. You know, my journey with addiction started at a very, very young age. You know, my first memories of using addictive behavior was when I was eating sugar and carbs at the age of four. I come from a very successful, highly functioning family. My grandfather was Christian Barnard, and he did the first human heart transplant. And my mom was a world champion water skier by the age of 14. And, you know, when my grandfather became famous, this was before I was born, he dated Sophia Loren and, you know, like all these gorgeous, amazing people. And he remarried just like really beautiful, beautiful people. And so from a young age, I learned that looks were the most important thing in the world. And I started having this belief that I was not beautiful and that I was not worthwhile and that I would never be good enough. And so, so much of what I did later in life like fed into these beliefs. I will probably start at the age of 14. I got into the modeling industry because you know, I thought that all affirmation and all meaning and purpose lay in how other people saw me from the outside. And so I would be beautiful and I would be worthwhile if other people acknowledged that in me. And so I kind of got lost in the modeling industry from the age of 14. I traveled all around the world and, you know, as much fun as I had these negative core beliefs of not being good enough, not being worthwhile, not being beautiful enough, were constantly reinforced by this industry that I was in. And so I started down this path of alcoholism and drug addiction and an eating disorder to soothe this internal problem, like trying to use external substances. And also in a desperate effort to be as thin as I possibly could, because that was the age, you know, during that time, it was like the wave thing. It was Kate Moss. It was like all of those models who were just really, really thin. And so that continued until I was about 24. But when I was young, I had these incredible dreams of becoming a neurosurgeon and I wanted to become a doctor and I wanted to create real change in the world. And I wanted to help people and I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to stop suffering because... I'd experienced a lot of suffering in my life up until this point, and we all experience suffering. So it's not that my case was particularly unique, but I wanted to heal myself through other people. You know, I always had this like intrinsic need to do that. But at the age of 24, I woke up one morning, I'd been on a heavy binge, I drank a ton, I had done cocaine, and I woke up that one morning and I can remember it so vividly. I woke up and I stumbled to the bathroom and I was like drinking from the tap. And I looked up at myself in the mirror and I was shocked. I did not recognize this person who stared back at me. I had these empty, empty eyes. And in that moment, I realized that I was nothing. Like every dream or passion that I'd ever had was out of the window. Like I was at the age of 24 and I had absolutely nothing to show for my life. Nothing. No more friends because of my behavior. My family was just about to cut me off, and I just didn't know how to go on anymore. And it was such a sobering moment, such a rock bottom, like a real, true experience of of this rock bottom. Like I had nothing, and I seriously considered taking my own life. You know, I really wanted to die. That moment in time, I was like, "What is the point? Like, I don't understand. I can't go on." Oof. And it still makes me feel really sad that I was so lost and so alone that I just didn't feel like there was hope. And that day I decided to choose life. I decided that I was going to do whatever it took to get my life back on track and to choose to live, to choose to live a life with passion and purpose. And so I reached out to my dad and I was like, you know, I think I'm having a nervous breakdown and I need help. And he was like, oh, we'll send you to a horse farm. Cause I'm obsessed with horses. And my mom came along later and she was like, absolutely not. She's been needing to go into rehab for a very long time. And finally, we have the ability to do this. So they booked me into rehab and I was in rehab for 18 months.
1: Wow. Wow.
2: I was such a lost soul. I was a shell of a person. I had no idea who I was. I had no idea that I had a personality. I didn't know what I liked. I didn't know if I liked pink or green. Like I was lost. I was completely lost. And so I started on this process of learning to know who I was and learning to identify my own needs starting from scratch like I was a blank canvas like and as hard as that was to recognize and admit that it was also so beautiful because I finally had the ability to shape my life in a way that was really powerful I was in treatment I had the most amazing counselors who just loved me and guided me through this process I also started working the 12 steps which changed my life and I still work to this day continuously I'm 17 years sober this year. and Awesome. That's Yay. great. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. You know, one day at a time, it's for sure. But when I was working with this counselor, he took me straight back. Like even though drugs and alcohol was what brought me to my knees, it was an eating disorder and a sugar addiction from a very young age that kind of led me to this other behavior. And so he pointed out that, you know, from an early age, when I was four years old, I learned how to soothe myself with sugar and refined carbs. These external substances had different meanings to me. They had emotional meanings to me. So Coca-Cola and chocolate would be synonymous with my dad coming home at night, which would mean safety and security for me. So I put these internal needs on external substances. And then later I did this with cocaine and alcohol. Like when I did cocaine for the first time, I felt so beautiful. I felt so confident, like everything that I'd been yearning for, I could finally found, but it was fleeting because there was no foundation of this in my life. After I went through rehab and I was 18 months clean, I got into a relationship and I had my first child. I got to this point where I realized that sugar was an addictive substance, because even though I'd let go of all the other substances, I was still looking for this external solution to this internal problem. And sugar was a huge problem for me. And I was overeating and I was soothing and I was hiding wrappers and I had the same behavior. So I started the world's first inpatient sugar and carb addiction program in South Africa in 2013. We did inpatient, outpatient, and online programs. And I wrote the book that you so kindly purchased, or which is like so sweet and such a privilege to see you holding. <laughs> and it kind of just like spiraled from there. It just grew. It was sort of, you had experienced
1: rehab yourself for 18 yes. months and obviously had learned a lot and learned about yourself.
2: And so did you take that same idea and apply it to sugar? I mean, I forgot to mention that my husband and I had then set up these addiction treatment facilities. So we had psychiatric clinics, addiction treatment centers, and we treated mental disorders. We treated alcoholism, eating disorders, drug addiction, all different addictive behaviors. So working through patients in that process and having a full clinical team, psychiatrists, nurses, doctors, 12-step therapists, counselors... We applied that exact program to sugar addicts, people who were obese, diabetic, who could not stop eating sugar despite the negative consequences that it had on their life. That was the question I think we have
1: is what constitutes a sugar addict? I mean, because people can be thin and still be sugar
2: addicts, right? Absolutely. My favorite definition of addiction is the compulsive pursuit of a substance or a behavior despite the negative consequences, right? So if you're just eating sugar and you're enjoying it and there's like no guilt or shame or fear, like go for it. But if you're continuously consuming sugar and it's causing havoc in your life, you know, there's chronic disease, you're diabetic, you're overweight, you're obese, and you're suffering from metabolic syndrome, which you can even when you're thin, then there's an issue. Or if you're experiencing huge amounts of shame and guilt, like you're physically healthy, but the sugar that you're eating is in huge quantities and leading to so much turmoil, then there's an issue. How addictive is sugar
0: compared to cocaine or alcohol?
2: There are studies, uh, mostly in animal models, that are showing that sugar is addictive, that it lights up the same centers as cocaine and alcohol does. You know, Mark Hyman, which I know you guys have interviewed him, has some great statements about it being, exactly as addictive as cocaine. And there's one study done in rats where they had the option of going for cocaine or sugar and they continuously went for the sugar. Like that was the one that was the most addictive. And so it's really hard to make a statement because the sugar industry is so powerful and I don't want to get into any conspiracy theories, but you know, we're sitting in a chronic disease crisis right now. And so much of that is driven by what we eat. And it's not caused by the whole foods that we're eating. It's caused by the refined junk food, which is a great combination of sugar, salt, and fat to stimulate the bliss point, which wants us, like leads us to eating more and never feeling satisfied. You know, there's so many facets to sugar addiction and what it means. In the book,
0: you describe how
2: the consumption of sugar and carbs works,
0: the spike, the withdrawal. Explain that.
2: When you eat sugar, you have a dopamine spike, right? And dopamine is your feel good hormone. So your brain lights up and you feel amazing and it's just so wonderful, right? And then it's a fleeting high of sorts. And so you feel this dopamine rush, but then you have a crash and your blood sugar drops and you're feeling jittery or not necessarily this extreme, but I'm doing like worst case scenario in this you feel jittery, you don't feel good. And so you start craving that high that you felt that dopamine rush. And in addition, like because your blood sugar is low, you're feeling a bit jittery and you know that you need to eat sugar to bring that up again. And this leads you into this vicious cycle of craving, binging, withdrawal, craving, binging, withdrawal. And, you know, with addiction as well, there's a tolerance that builds up. So you need to eat more and more of the same substance to have the same results. And so that's that spiral of addiction.
1: That's pretty clear. So you're right. So it's just that you've got to keep it to keep yourself feeling good is really what it is. Absolutely. And because sugar in a way is, as you say, in so many foods, it's almost like the silent addiction in a way, right? Because we celebrate with birthday cakes, we celebrate with brownies or that kind of stuff. So there's that part of it too, right?
2: Absolutely. I mean, we're taught to celebrate by the consumption of sugar, not so much by the human experience or, you know, the emotional connection that we so... Desperately crave.
0: Right. And especially now when we can't be with each other, all there is is sugar.
2: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Like our best friend. true.
1: (laughs) Which is terrible. So the role of sugar addiction and obesity and diabetes, I think you pretty much just explained that, right? Is that when it's an addiction because I know that I'm severely overweight and I don't feel good, but yet I'm still doing it. I want to be better. I want to feel better. I want to be healthier, but I can't do anything about it. That's an addiction.
2: For sure. And I think there's like the physiological component and there's also like the emotional psychological component. And so my interest is more in the psychological component than it is in the physiological component, because I'm not obviously a physician, but just from my own experience of this like jail, this mental jail that we create for ourselves that's where I was. That's where I was at that point where I just didn't know if there was any hope. Like I was my own greatest enemy. You know, I was lucky enough to have the tools to break free from that. How do you get
0: beneath the addiction?
2: In other words,
0: how do you figure out the underlying thoughts and feelings and behaviors that keep you stuck in an unhealthy lifestyle?
2: My biggest And the thing that made the greatest difference in my life was not going to an expensive therapist or spending thousands on like a specific program. It was working the 12 steps. It was going to 12 step meetings and working the steps or admitting I was powerless over whatever substance and even relationships, believing that there was something outside of myself that could restore me to sanity and that that was God or a higher power or, you know, something other than just me, something other than the self-centered fear that's constantly driving me to look for like this external search For meaning and purpose. So, the 12 steps is applicable to food addiction, any addiction. It's applicable to any situation in life. You know, I wish they taught it in the schools because it's just the most beautiful program in admitting powerlessness, learning where our responsibility stops and where something else's responsibility starts. And so, it's about for me keeping my side of the street clean. What do I have control over? It's not about blaming. Like, one of the biggest things in my addiction was that I felt like such a victim. I always felt that I was a victim of my circumstances. I was the victim of everything else. And, you know, through living recovery, I realized that I have control over that. Like I am the one directing myself, my subconscious. These thoughts that I operate according to that I wasn't aware of before, but that I am aware of right now and harnessing the power of the subconscious to create this life beyond my wildest expectations. Can you go through the 12 steps? Yeah. The first step is admitted we were powerless over whatever substance or relationship So we admitted we were powerless over drugs and that our lives have become unmanageable. Okay, so my life is unmanageable because I am, say, diabetic and I'm overweight and I've lost my relationships. And so that's power and manageability. And that powerlessness is like once I put a substance in my mouth, such as sugar, I can't stop. One is too many and a thousand is never enough. Like I have a little bag of jelly beans or a big bag of jelly beans. And like, if I have one, that bag will call my name, even if I put it in the pantry and I will finish it. Step two is came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Right. And so insanity, repeating the same behaviors over and over again, expecting different results. Like, I need to give this to a power greater than myself, to something much larger. And whether that's the 12-step fellowship or God in the traditional form or a higher power or universal love, whatever you want to call it, do that. And then the third step is handing my will and my life over to the power of God. So really being like, I can't do this. I need help. Like, help me do this. And step four is beautiful. It's taking a personal inventory. It's really learning how to keep my side of the street clean. So I go through my resentments, my anger, my fear how I've harmed people in the past, which patterns in my life keep repeating themselves, which thoughts keep repeating themselves. Like what is my operating system? What are my limiting beliefs? Step five is to share that. Step four with another person. Step six is to make a list of our shortcomings to give them over to God. So my shortcomings are, for instance, that I sometimes rule people by anger, like my anger scares people these kind of things and to hand the stuff over. And then eight to nine is about making amends to people. So if it is possible in person, so taking responsibility for my behavior in an effort to not repeat that behavior. Step 10 is about taking personal inventory over and over again, every night. Step 11 is about prayer and meditation. And step 12 is about being of service. So carrying the message to other people who are still suffering. When you're
0: in a 12-step program, do you just repeat the cycle all the time? So once you get to 12, do you go back to one to stay in recovery or do you just go through it once?
2: So a lot of people work it very differently. I continuously work the steps because I do believe that it's like the layers of the onion. Like I constantly have, have things that I need to peel off in order to get to the next layer and the next layer and the next layer. But there are other people who do it differently. I do continuously work the steps with a sponsor and I have sponsees who work the steps with me as well. And so it's a really beautiful cycle of not being a therapist to somebody, but just supporting them on this journey through sharing personal experience.
1: Thank you for sharing those 12 steps because I think that they are so important and obviously a huge part of how you walk through life. So thank you for that. So Karen, tell us what your philosophy is and what five principles you use when talking about the sugar addiction.
2: Okay. So the first principle is to cut out all sugar and refined carbs. So I don't particularly like want to prescribe a diet to any specific person. Although in the book, there is a diet that was put together by a dietitian. I didn't just decide to kind of like throw some meal plans and recipes together, you know, or like this was done by a professional, but you can follow any diet or lifestyle plan that you like. And I think the one thing that kind of combines all these healthy ways of eating, you know, even vegan, vegetarian, keto, paleo, carnivore is like that we removed. Sugar and refined carbs. So, really, basically, just cut out sugar and refined carbs from your life. So, when you quit
0: the sugar and junk food, your first philosophy, do you just
2: do it cold turkey or do you wean off it or how do you do that? You know, I feel like if you are an addict or if you have addictive behavior and you are trying to quit something, there's never anything like moderation. And so, you know, one is too many and a thousand is never enough. Once I put something in my mouth, I'm powerless to stop. So cold Turkey for me and for the people that we've worked with is really the best way to do it. And it's really hard. Like the first week can be tough. You can have those symptoms of withdrawal, like feel super jittery, you know, like have headaches. There's so much that takes for the sugar to leave the body and for your body to regulate itself that it's quite powerful to witness the withdrawal from sugar and how hard it is physically, but emotionally as well. We have to cut out the grains and the processed vegetable oils. Yes, I think those ones are really, really bad. You know, once again, processed, like all processed food. We don't naturally eat those processed grains and I don't think it's good for us. I think it, it causes inflammation in the body. I think the bigger one, the more dangerous one for me is the vegetable oils, the highly processed vegetable oils. And I think they cause so much harm for us and lead to the buildup of so many chronic diseases that I do think that that one is a really important one to cut out in a big way. And then like fat is your friend, right? So don't be scared of fat. Like fat's been demonized in such a big way for such a long time that it's so scary to add it back into your diet. And there's actually a term for that. It's lipophobia is the fear of fat, the fear of eating fat. And so I suffered from that in a big way. Like I grew up in the era where we had rice cakes and fat-free cottage cheese. You know, I lived on that. And sugar-free gummies, like that stuff was all fine because there was no fat in it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah, and so embracing healthy fats like avocado and olive oil and some nuts and nut butter is so good in healing the brain and the body and just so many things. And so the next step, of course, is preparing your own food. And so this is so much more to me than just actually getting in the kitchen and preparing your food from scratch. For me, it's being of service to my family, to myself. It's a way of honoring myself in the highest form, of honoring my kids, of creating a space where we can come together as a family and have the conversations that we wouldn't normally have when we're at a restaurant or we're ordering takeout It's also like looking at like what is going into my food and really acknowledging that it's important what I put in my body, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, and, you know, physically.
1: That is really a great way to look at it. You know, creating something for your family, creating something for those that you love, shifting that from, oh God, I can't believe I have to do this again tonight.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's really lovely. Okay. The last one is empowering yourself in body, mind, and spirit. And so I think the biggest thing here is to realize that we are the sum of our parts, right? And that we're not all just a body or a mind or our emotions. And so being able to look at ourselves holistically and recognizing that there's so many things that we need to take care of ourselves. I can't take care of anybody else if I'm not taking care of myself. And so, you know, looking at what I'm consuming emotionally, physically, spiritually, and prioritizing that, like really, really prioritizing that. I know that if I don't put my recovery program first, like things just go bad. And it's not that I use drugs or alcohol. It's just that my life becomes a little bit chaotic and unmanageable. And so I have to be very rigid with how I start my day, you know, with prayer and meditation and a journal. And I have quite a crazy routine, but it helps me. I suffer from depression and anxiety, and that needs to be managed in a big way. And so breathing in the morning and taking a cold plunge. I have to do that. I have to make sure that I do exercise every single day. I have to pray. I have to meditate. I have to write in my journal. And those are non-negotiables. Like when that stuff starts slipping, I know that there's a problem.
0: How do you know when you're physically hungry or you're emotionally hungry?
2: (gasps) That is the best question ever because it is really, really hard. Like one of the techniques that we teach when we used to have the clinic is like, just take a moment and like take a breath and just like center yourselves and then put your hand on your tummy and you ask yourself am i tummy hungry and that's a real physical hunger like that's you need to eat and then put your hand on your heart And ask yourself the question, am I heart hungry? Like, do I need love? Do I need emotion? Do I need support? Like, can I ask somebody for help? What do I need to do to soothe this emotional need that I'm having instead of acting out on sugar? And then on your head, like, am I head hungry? Do I need like stimulation? Do I need to read a book? Do I need to consume some kind of powerful reading or even media or an audiobook? Like, what do I really, really need? Like, what is it that I need? You know, but even that was a struggle for me at the beginning to really identify physical hunger because all I'd ever known was to eat emotionally. And so I actually did a really interesting experiment recently with a CGM, which is a continuous glucose monitor, in an effort to understand hunger and when my body is actually hungry. And so what happens is you measure your blood sugar and you have a specific trigger. And if my blood sugar, for instance, is below 78, that means I'm hungry. And what that means is that I generally am not hungry until about like 1, 2 p.m. every single day. And so this notion of having to eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner and food, like consuming my day has left me because now I really understand my body's cues. And when I am truly physically hungry, I need to feel myself, you know, seeing food as fuel And not as comfort and reward and everything else. Like food is fuel and I need it. Just like my car needs gas. I need fuel to make my way through life.
1: Yeah, that's sort of a real paradigm shift for us, you know, in that it's fuel and it's not entertainment and that it's really such an important part of living a healthy life, eating well and healthy.
0: One of the issues with food addiction is body image. And people just hate their bodies and learn that from an early age. How do you encourage people or treat people to love their
2: bodies? Oh, this is probably like one of the topics that makes me feel like the saddest for sure, because it's such a personal thing for me. You know, I've hated my body since I was like four years old. You know, I've never felt that I'm good enough. I've never felt that I'm beautiful enough. And it's something that I still struggle with like all the time, but it's gotten so much better. It wasn't until I was able to identify these underlying core beliefs of not being good enough, not being beautiful enough, and how every behavior or person or circumstance that I invited into my life was constantly reinforcing this. Like with the modeling industry, I was constantly reinforcing to myself that I wasn't good enough, that I wasn't beautiful enough. And so it was only when I started identifying these beliefs. And learn techniques to help shape my subconscious thoughts and feelings and being able to then choose my thoughts and not just having them direct my life that things really started shifting and changing. I mean, it's so hard, like in this age of social media, I'm so glad I didn't grow up with Instagram models and Facebook people and these people's lives that just appear to be so perfect. I'm so glad that I didn't grow up with that. And I've got two boys. And I thank God every day that I think it would be so hard to have a daughter in this space because it's really difficult. Like never, ever compare your internal world to somebody else's external appearance because you are always going to feel either better than or worse than. And that's never a good place to be. So, what I encourage people to do is a lot of mirror work, which is really hard, you know, just standing and looking at yourself in the mirror and just being like, I'm beautiful, I'm worthwhile, I'm good enough. And shifting those thoughts, like constantly questioning like this devil, this crazy person that lives in my head that tells me I'm not good enough, that tells me I'm not beautiful. Like being like, hey, who made you this expert? Like I'm going to start challenging you because this is not the truth. You know, for so many years and even up until recently, I was like, I'm a failure. I'm not good enough. You know, I haven't achieved much in life. And I was like, oh my gosh, I just turned 40. I've written two books. I've set up huge treatment centers. I've had two beautiful children. You know, I've got an amazing job. I have a sugar-free revolution business. Like who am I to judge myself so harshly? Like this is ridiculous. (laughs) And, um, you know, so applying the principles that I would to somebody else to myself,
1: which is sometimes so difficult, you know?
0: This is kind of funny. My son-in-law is eligible for a COVID shot because his BMI is over a certain point. And this is in the state of Virginia. And he was so excited. And if you were to look at my son-in-law, he's this tall, lanky fellow. So my question is, first of all, what do you think of the BMI and all of that? And should we weigh ourselves? And how do we know we're at the right
2: weight? And what do you think? Um so I don't really like the BMI measurement at all. As you said, you have a son in law who's tall and lanky and you know what <laughs> I mean, his BMI is over a certain point that makes it dangerous. Like so many athletes, their BMI because of like their muscle mass is like over a certain point where it's said that it's dangerous and it's not. I think we need to look at our blood markers. We need to look at the triglycerides, the good cholesterol, the bad cholesterol and the relationship between the particle sizes. And that you really only can do with like a healthcare provider who doesn't necessarily believe in like the old school approach, but is open to new ways of understanding. Look at your blood sugar, weight, sure, like measure that, but rather measure body fat percentage and how that correlates with your lean muscle mass. And, you know, there's so much more that we need to investigate than just the number on the scale or your BMI. Like those are such superficial ways of judging our health. There's so much more. And then also just to remember that health is not just like our physical health. You know, so much of our health, our mental, emotional, spiritual health manifests in our bodies. But so the solution is not always another drug or something like that. Like we need to look at the person holistically. But yes, so back to the actual question. BMI is really not a great indication. I love what you just said because it really is. Everybody is different,
1: and every different way of learning how we can nourish ourselves and taking the time to figure out how to nourish ourselves is so important. You
2: no, know, also to become an expert in ourselves. Like, yeah, this is how I respond to something doesn't necessarily mean that somebody else responds to something.
1: So true. And also realizing that we too are a work in progress. And sometimes what might have worked before might have to be tweaked to the times for right now. And I think that's something Dora and I, we actually talk a lot about because our bodies are changing, you know, as we are aging you need different things to nourish yourself at certain different times in your life.
0: It's so true. I told
1: Trisha today,
0: she goes, oh, I like your pants. And I said, (laughs) well, they're my fat pants because because it's Mm -hmm. COVID and I've put on some (laughs) extra weight and stuff. And Trisha always reminds me, she said, Jaro, just be glad that you're healthy. Just be glad that at our age, we are 60. We have many people as they age Are losing weight and you know, not healthy at all. And just be glad that we are healthy. So it
1: was true. And the (laughs) other two things, sometimes it's okay to go get a size bigger pants. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. (laughs) You know what I think we went through that as well. But just always keeping in mind that we are a work in progress. And it's just been awesome to hear your philosophies. Really, you are so inspirational. You know, as a sugar addict, it's so great to hear a plan. And I know I've been inspired, Doro, on our talk today, big time.
0: (laughs) And so have I. Now, let's say we've become sugar-free. What can we expect life to be like?
2: I mean, physically sugar-free, you will lose weight. You will feel a lot better emotionally, like emotionally more stable. You won't have as many cravings. You won't necessarily need to eat so often your skin will get better. You know, your hair may grow better. Like there's so much that happens because the inflammation in the body goes down. And so your body can function optimally. If you start trying to find the sweetness in your life emotionally and spiritually within, like that's when the real shift happens. Like that's when you really truly start living. It's when you realize that that sweetness and that love and that everything that you've been searching for lies within, like that's when life starts. Oh, how beautiful. That is so
1: beautiful (laughs) and so true. It's not so easy either. So it's so nice to have a community around you, right? That, that, to build a strong community that believes that too. And kind of helps you Because I think the inside journey is a solo journey, but yet you need the support of all
2: around to help you get into that. (laughs) Absolutely. And the journey is like so up and down, you know, I don't think like we should forget that it's like, you don't just go sugar-free and everything changes and your life's perfect. It just means that we're not using external substances to soothe this. And sometimes the pain becomes worse before it gets better. And I think that's such an important thing to remember is that life isn't easy. You know, life is freaking painful (laughs) you know our suffering is optional and that's where we have the power to choose that's where we can make the shift can make the change like life happens like it really does but if we have a beautiful community around us if we're doing the internal work like that's when we learn to move through life with grace and passion and purpose
0: Oh Karen, Karen thank oh you. Oh my god, thank you. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig today. We've loved every
1: minute of yes, it. Yes. Oh, well you. I just
2: adore you boys and it's honestly the greatest privilege. I just feel so loved being able to spend time with two such beautiful women who, you know, who I look up to. So thank you for having me.
1: Thank you for joining us on HealthGig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha,
0: And I'm Doro.
1: Be well.